Welcome to the Team of a Lifetime show. This podcast is all about helping you propel your team's performance to an extraordinary level. I'm Sally Love, your host of the Team of a Lifetime show. Tune in as my expert guests and I tackle the tough challenges teams have to overcome to achieve success. You'll get insight, powerful proven practices, and the inspiration you need to lead effectively, build an amazing team culture, and deliver results that people didn't even believe were possible. Let's get started. I'm excited to talk to my guest today about his passion to change relationships among owners and construction contractors. With his extensive experience on very challenging mega projects in the Canadian oil sands, when it comes to relationships among owners and contractors, he's likely seen it all. And he believes that there's a much better way to deliver projects than by owners and contractors being adversaries. He's program director for Engage CMC in Alberta, Canada. And he's my great friend, Mike Garislowski. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks, Sally. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning. So the first question I'd like to ask you, Mike, you know, we're going to talk about what it would be like in the capital projects industry to eliminate adversarial relationships. So the first question I have for you today is, how do you define an adversarial relationship? Mm. It, it, it's a good question. The, uh, the dictionary typically describes an adversarial relationship as two or more people um, competing against each other or opposing each other. I think in the projects world, it's not quite that simple. Um, the way I view it is it's, it's a case of one or more participants placing their interests above the project or above the other person's interest. And by doing so, creating a conflict. It doesn't mean that you're not getting along or you have to get along because the relationships between people don't necessarily reflect what's going on on the project. So I'll just give you an example. I was doing a project a couple of years back and project manager was an absolute tyrant. My introduction to this man was to walk into my first update meeting and six minutes later, he had fired the project manager that I was working with and told everyone the meeting was over and he was demanding that the sponsor show up in his office within the hour. So that was my introduction. Not very long after that, we're all in a team building session at a, session at a bowling alley bowling. It was great fun. Um, his approach to project management had nothing to do with the uh, how he viewed the project. It was more about people. At the end of that project, who actually told us that we had delivered the best DBM package they had ever seen. So again, it's not about interpersonal relationships. It's about that project relationship and how the participants view it. What I've observed is that a lot of times adversarial relationships on capital projects, uh, it seems like it's, it's almost an accepted practice. Like, well, this is just the way it is. It's this way on all capital projects, and there's nothing you can do about it. Do you buy into that mindset? Sally, the simple answer is no. So if you as an individual are committed to the concept of project excellence, and you go to work every day with the intent of delivering 
optimal project outcomes. You can't buy into it. You can't accept it. And you have to, to work against it. I've always shaken my head when I see some of our project leaders. These are good leaders. Um, if you're working for these people, they're fabulous. They invest the time in you to help you achieve the very best you can achieve. It, it's a set of project management skills that most leaders learn and cultivate. But then they turn around and they <laughs> they fail to recognize that those same skill sets and the same application of process helps your project relationships with the various teams, whether it be a contractor team, an engineering team, a supply chain team. It's the same thing. It's not really all that hard to foster good relationships, but for whatever reason, they don't seem to think it necessary or important. So you and I have spent some time in team building sessions, and my recollection is it was almost exclusively with the engineering company. We had the owner that I worked for and the engineering company. The engineering is 10% of a project. Where were the contractors that were going to execute the lion's share, 50% of the project? I was always grateful that we had those sessions, but uh, I think we missed something. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it's so important, as you well know from doing constructability, it's so important to bring in the contractor early, very early in the process, not when it's time to hand over the engineering to them, right? Right. What do you believe are the root causes that, that's caused this mindset of adversarial relationships among stakeholders to take hold over the years? This isn't a simple answer. It could take me a few minutes, but one of the things I firmly believe in is it's often a failure of top-down leadership. If an owner actually values the relationship he has with his contracting community, He's got to communicate it to his own employees. He's got to impress upon his own employees that that's a value. Thoughts control actions. And the contractor has a key stake in this, obviously, but they have to do the same thing. They have to value the relationship with the owner. Most of them do because it's commercially rewarding. But they've got to impress upon their employees how important that relationship is. If the interactions between people in the field are typically what determines whether your contract and your project are going to be successful or not. Over and above that, owners also have to be careful with their incentive programs. In a lot of companies, incentivizes these people to achieve higher standards, but the way they do it isn't often considered in terms of what the overall outcome is going to be. So an example would be that supply chain teams are often incented to negotiate lower prices and to be able to report to their bosses, look how much money we've saved the company. Unfortunately, the way that manifests itself is the supply chain takes a hard-headed approach with the contracting community and the supplier community, and the relationships that are so valuable in the field during execution are being undermined before the the team ever gets to the field. It's also very common for the owner to incent his teams based on a project safety performance. This is, is, is morally the right thing to do, but if you want to see contractors getting beaten up 
because of performance issues, safety is, is the one place where this shows up more than anywhere else. And we see it at all levels because the organizations incent their vice presidents. They incent their directors um, and all the way down the food chain. It's pretty tough on a contractor when everybody's uh, being incented for safety performance and they struggle with safety issues. I think, though, the biggest contributing factor realistically is the expectations that the owner puts on the contractor. Somewhere along the way, we decided fast tracking was the proper way to deliver projects, at least here in Alberta, where I have spent most of my career. Fast tracking has a nice sound to it. And yep, economically, there's a case to be said that it's a great way to deliver a project. But what happens is we wind up putting our engineering out before the engineering is complete. We tender our contracts without an understanding of what the full scope truly is. And we mobilize those contractors before they have enough materials or designs to keep working continuously without interruption. It's hard on the contractor because he can't work continuously, which means he's going to hold out his hand and ask for a change order. And that change is going to go up to people who don't like going back to their bosses and telling them, we need more money. Lastly, I think the, uh, the other big contributing factor is the concept of bought work. Um, a contractor lowballs his price when he's tendering in the hopes that he'll get change orders from the owner that make the project a little more profitable. And we know the practice has been around forever. It's not a great relationship building approach to a project, but it happens. Well, Mike, there's tremendous insight in that. I, I really appreciate you digging deep into those because I think it's important for us to understand how we have gotten to the point where we are just saying, well, adversarial relationships, they, they just happen on, on all projects. And, and you and I both know they do not have to. So what are some of the tangible adverse impacts to projects of adversarial relationship? Well, you're going to see project costs increase. You're going to see schedules run longer. When you have mistrust on either side of a relationship, you're going to wind up with additional layers of cost being applied to the project as both the owner and the contractor take longer durations to ensure that they're covering themselves commercially and protecting themselves from the other side of that relationship. In the worst case scenario, contractors will have their contracts suspended and new contractors will be hired to take their place. One project I took part in, we actually hired two civil contractors and worked them side by side, pouring foundations and developing our project. And we did so because we were in a very high labor risk environment. It was a decision we took consciously. We figured if there was two contractors, they would both be drawing from labor pools and we stood a better chance of getting the, the labor we needed. As it turned out, one of those contractors struggled tremendously with their safety performance. And if we go back to my previous comments about how you incent your team, at the higher levels of our organization, some of the leaders who had huge bonuses at risk decided it would be a better thing 
to ask this contractor to leave the site than for them to risk their bonuses. So we changed out the contractor. And I can tell you that by the time all was said and done, it cost that project about a million and a half dollars and six weeks of schedule to get that second contractor up and running on a scope of work they were actually working right beside. Mm. That's a great example. And it's it's all so common as well. Let's just remove this contractor. But there are huge impacts associated with that most of the time. Yeah, we don't we don't spend enough time thinking about the consequences of our actions sometimes, especially when emotions are involved. But it's it it's an it's a long process to rescope the work and redefine it for another contract. Yeah, and and just like in the example that you just talked about, you lost six weeks of schedule. When you remove a contractor, that work is not getting done, and it's got to get done. <laughs> when you have an environment where five to six months of the year are between 20 and 30 below Celsius, seeing your schedule shift to the right can have a real significant impact on your project. Yeah, that's for sure. You just brought back some memories, too, of that cold weather up there. (laughs) So you mentioned contracts before, and I would love to know if you have found that certain contract types tend to generate adversarial relationships versus other contract types, or have you not seen much influence um, when it comes to the contracting type? That's an interesting question. Personally, I believe the the commercial relationship between the contractor and the owner should be the same regardless. And the relationships between the teams in the field should be the same regardless. I honestly don't think the contract form or the contract type influences um, the relationships quite as much as other contributing factors. If you go back to some of the things I listed where top-down leadership provides the correct guidance and the incentive process is correct and not undermining the project, the relationship between the teams should be solid regardless of whether it's a time and material, unit price contract, or a, a lump sum. If you've got a contractor that's taking a reimbursable basis on as a contract, it's typically because the owner and or the engineering house doesn't have an appropriate level of detail to offer the work out commercially at different terms. Or you might have conditions that can't be controlled adequately or aren't known adequately to buy the risk out of the con- commercial relationship. In that, in that case, the owner's team should be working very aggressively to help the contractor because he agreed to take on the risk. He agreed to accept the risk assigned to him by the owner. Morally, the project team should bend over backwards to help this contractor. If the contractor was doing a lump sum contract, that contractor is fully motivated to execute as efficiently as he can. Obviously, the size of his reward is totally dependent on on how quickly he finishes and gets mechanical completion signed off. In that case, 
the owner's team should also be working as diligently and helpfully as possible because the project costs will stop as soon as the contractor is completed. Owner's costs, contingencies, they all come to an end faster and the project is successful, which in a lot of companies is also an incentive category for employees. If I had to pick one over the other, Sally, I think I'd have to suggest that uh, time and material contracts are probably more often adversarial. Why is that? It goes back to my earlier comments about issuing engineering before it's complete, sending contractors to the field before we're ready to have them there, and issuing contracts before we know the full scope. When you do those things, As soon as they get to the field, change starts to happen. You you find your contractors trying to keep their people busy, but unable to do so because you don't have enough material, you don't have adequate drawings, and they start writing up change orders. It's not their responsibility to fund fund the owner, but again, those changes gain elevation. And they wind up with people reviewing them who don't want to have to go back to their bosses and explain that we have to we have to assign more funding to this project because we did a lousy job on the front end. And that push from the top down starts to impact the relationships in the field. The contractor is only doing what the contractor has to do commercially. But. On the owner's side, that doesn't usually find favor. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Let's switch gears now, Mike, because I really want you to have an opportunity to share with my listeners how we can overcome some of these problems. And, And I know from your vast experience on these huge mega projects, and you've got some success stories, and I I'd love it if you would share some of those. Uh you're right. We've seen some things. Over the years, I have, a, I have a really good example I'll share with you. So the first time I actually consciously set out to remedy what had become an adversarial relationship between my team and the contractor's team, we had a civil contractor hired and we had assigned some site preparation work to them and we had hired an agent to work with them. Unfortunately, one of our senior leaders discovered that they had done more work than the contract had called for, and that senior leader told the contractor they weren't going to get paid for that work. Now, at the retail level, that work had a value somewhere in the neighborhood of a million dollars. So the contractor was arguing and trying to justify the fact that he deserved to get paid. The way it manifested itself was the contractor was engaged in other activities on the project and they started dragging their feet. They were assigned the responsibility for building some of the roads within the project, roads we needed to get other contractors effectively to the work face. And it dragged and it dragged and it dragged. And I was getting hotter and hotter and hotter. I started trying to come up with a way that I could tackle the issue, remedy the problem, and get the project back on track. 
what I decided to do was to use a contractor evaluation process, a scheduled contractor evaluation process. Now, that's not a new tool, common tool, but I had rationalized that there wasn't a lot of sense in me trying to correct the behaviors of the contractor if my own project team was going to continue to antagonize the contractor's team. So I, I crafted this evaluation process so that my team would wind up at the table first and I could work on their attitudes and behaviors before we ever got to the contractor. So I had the right subject matter experts join us, the HSE leaders, we had the quality leaders, any functional leader that could comment on the contractor's performance was in the session. I had my own team all sitting in a round table type setting. We, we had created an evaluation process between the supply chain leader and myself that was fairly detailed. There were about 30 to 40 different examination points. When we started, I can tell you, Sally, that the, uh, the, the session started with an abundance of acrimony and finger pointing on the part of my own team. I kept trying to impress on them that this was intended to be a productive session. It was meant to be a helpful session for the contractor. But human nature being what human nature is, it became a venting session on the part of my team, complaining about the different aspects of the contractor's performance that they thought were lacking or in need of improvement. Eventually, they started to understand as we examined the various aspects and they heard from the functional leaders that things weren't quite as bad as they thought they were witnessing. So... HSC performance in the field, um, they thought it wasn't great. It was some, some said it was kind of poor, but the HSC lead was able to convey that statistically, it was exactly where our expectations were. Quality assurance and quality control management, exactly what we wanted from them, even though the folks in the field thought they might have been seeing something different. So as we went through the process, they started to realize that maybe their own perceptions were off base. And they started to appreciate a little more what the conditions the contractor was dealing with were. When we finished with our own team, I then went to the contractor's team. I gave them a copy of the evaluation form we were using, showed them exactly what we'd be talking about. At the end of the evaluation, we also included a section where the contractor was invited to tell us the owners, what we had to do to improve. I impressed upon them that it was a productive session. They didn't need to worry about being a beat up. We were actually trying to help them out, do them a favor. When the actual time for the meeting came, of course, predictably, the contractor approached it as though it was going to be another contractor beating. And they joined us with a very defensive posture. There's absolutely no doubt they were defensive and reticent. They were uncomfortable being where they were. We started discussing the items and with each item where we had determined there was an opportunity for them to improve, I had insisted from my own team that they, were, that they provide specific examples of how the contractor 
could improve. And we shared these. Um, my team was in the room, the subject matter experts were in the room, and the contractor's team was obviously in the room. We shared each of the opportunities for them to improve with the contractor, and eventually the contractor came to recognize that we had invested time in this. We had deliberated and examined and been creative in trying to find processes that would help them raise the score in each category. That first session, I didn't achieve everything I wanted to achieve, but it was improvement. When we first asked them what we could do to improve, they offered up almost zero. <laughs> they were still not that comfortable. But as subsequent sessions were held, they started to loosen up. They knew that it was a productive process, and they knew that we were actually sincere about what we were doing. My team came to recognize that it was actually a pretty good contractor, and they deserved some help because we hadn't dealt them a pat hand when the project started. So over time, the contractors, contractors always talk amongst themselves, just like people do. Yes, and, they do. <laughs> and each contractor that came into those sessions, because I, I obviously extended it to other contractors, they all recognized it was productive and that it was um, no reason to be apprehensive about attending. It, the relationships improved and that project, actually, if I remember correctly, um, owners didn't have to go back to the board for more money. We were within, I think, the 5% envelope of the budget. I think we were slightly over, but we were very close. And some of the impacts to the project schedule and budget, we actually managed to uh, compensate for with those contractors. Yeah, it's amazing what people can do when they collaborate instead of compete. The long and the short of it is, it, it, all it took was a little sincerity on the part of our team to demonstrate to them that we did have their best interests at heart. And when we were able to do that, even the million dollar issue, which continued to fester for a bit, but they recognized it was, it wasn't our team that was responsible. They, they set it to the side and they pursued the balance of the project with, with the enthusiasm and energy that they should have. Which was a win-win for y'all as the owner and for them as the contractor, I'm guessing. Very true. They went on to get awarded a, Lord, how big was it, $20 million package shortly thereafter. So, Mike, you have been called in to participate in so many different projects. What are some of the tangible signs that you pick up on right away that tell you that owners and contractors are not adversaries, but instead they're collaborating? First, I think you can almost sense it when you walk onto a job site. It's, it's almost like a, an extra sense that uh, project people developed. You just, you can feel when you're on a good project. As far as the relationships go, I think you see it in the honesty that's exhibited between project partners. Um, contractors don't try and hide mistakes. They don't try and hide problems because they don't have to. They know that the project team will collaborate and try and help them find the solution. 
They report errors and mistakes freely. They'll issue themselves nonconformance reports, which is actually what you want. That's the perfect scenario. Secondly, you, you've got good productivity. If, if you think back to my previous example where the contractor is dragging his feet, you know something is up. Well, when pr- production is optimal and people are out there enjoying their work and being productive, you can feel it. You can see it. The old adage that it's easier to pull a rope than to push it really applies. Um, you get you get a, a good project and everybody's pulling together. On a bad project where relationships are adversarial, let's face it, all good leaders try and shield their employees and the different levels of supervision from the politics and the business of projects. But eventually people find out and when the contractor's personnel his staffing knows there's issues they sense it and it impacts their productivity there's absolute certainty that when a group of um, contractor employees know they're a part of something good they demonstrate it in, in everything they do, whether it's participating in, in, in the peripheral activities of the project, um, whether it's helping to keep a clean job site. You'll, you'll always get rewarded when you have a happy job site. And there are certainly going to be consequences when they're not happy and they recognize they're on a bad work site. I was... Um, just to share another example, I was working on a fish oil plant in Nova Scotia, and the modules that comprised this fish oil plant had been built in a module yard. Uh, the owner of the module yard had decided they were going to cease operations, and this set of modules was going to be their last set of modules. Well, some very clever project leader walked out to the workplace one day and told everybody, this is the last set of modules. You guys are out of a job when this is done. I can share with you that the product we had delivered to us in the field was maybe the worst module construction I have witnessed in my career. Mm. Yeah. Was mm-hmm. not a good situation. We're back to leadership again, aren't we, Mike? There you go. I mean, that's leadership, but or lack of leadership, really, is what we're talking about there. That's exactly what it is. So what specific approaches have you seen owners and contractors intentionally use when starting a new project to try to get that project off on the right foot and to minimize or even eliminate adversarial relationships? Project leaders will often include in their planning and schedule into their schedules facilitated team building sessions. And quite often, a particular young lady I know gets hired to, to facilitate those sessions. If, and it's especially true if you know that there's adversarial relationships before you actually start the project. Um, if my memory serves correctly, you and I have participated in 14 different projects. Um, you're, contributions have always been wonderful. They always started us off on a solid footing and helped us to integrate as a team. 
but I will offer up to you that I think the best work you ever did was a project that you and I participated in in Denver. Do you remember that? I do remember that. You would know this better than I, but if I remember correctly, there was a previous project at that site just a few years prior. It was the same engineering company that had been engaged. The operations team and the operations leadership was basically the same. And the contractor that was going to execute the work was the same. And on that first project, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but on that first project, the operations team didn't trust the construction team. That's right. The construction team didn't trust the engineering team, right? That's right. And the engineering team didn't trust operations. Yeah, we had a lot of uh, lack of trust there. It was uh, maybe one of the most fractious environments that I had seen, and we hadn't even start, started the project. We were barely into the front-end planning. Anyway, I can almost say that I sensed it was different because I had done so many sessions with you. The approach that you took, it just had a different feel to it. And I didn't realize, because I was new to the environment, how deep the, the wounds from that previous project had been. I know that... You focused on getting us over some of those hurdles, uh, breaking breaking down the mistrust that existed. I I can't remember the exercises you used, but I can remember a lot of the exercises we participated in over the years. But for some reason, I can't remember that one. I just remember that at the end of it, I remember thinking to myself, wow, <laughs> that was impressive. That was good work. I think, Sally, that was your best work. Those three teams left the session committed to supporting each other, working reasonably collaboratively. It was a very, very difficult project. There was a good, solid foundation. And a lot of that enmity that existed, those adversarial relationships that existed at the beginning, they went away. You did a great piece of work. Well, Mike, you're very kind. And we have worked on a lot of projects together. That's for sure. So thank you for that. So Mike, our time together today is is coming to a close. I'm wondering what's one last piece of wisdom you'd like to pass along to our listeners today so that they can make a real difference in owner and contractor relationships. I once said to uh, one of my senior project leaders, somebody I reported to, that if we're, if relationships were commoditized, we'd all be paying taxes on the profits. There is as much value in a good relationship between the, the contractor and the owner as there is in the planning that they invest, in the constructability that they invest. It's as valuable as any capital efficiency process that the customer and the engineering team bring to the process. Savvy business owners know this. They know the relationships in a project environment are key to being successful. And if you don't have solid relationships, you're fighting your project from beginning to end. I'm pretty sure that is why we keep hiring you, young lady. (laughs) Well, um, as I've told people before, um, there's a lot of job security 
out there on capital projects because not everybody understands just how important relationships truly are. Couldn't agree with you more. Mike, it is always a pleasure talking to you. And I, I just thank you so much for, for being with me today and, and exploring this topic because this is so important. We really, all of us working on capital projects, we have to do whatever we can to ensure that we minimize and even eliminate adversarial relationships. So thank you. As we get ready to wrap up today's episode, I'd like to ask you to do something for me. If you found this episode valuable, will you share it? That would mean so much to me. You can share this episode from whatever platform you're listening on today, or you can simply direct people to visit sallyloveinspires.com slash podcast. And be sure to subscribe to the Team of a Lifetime podcast, too, so that you can continue to get insight, real-life application, and the inspiration you need for transforming your team into the Team of a Lifetime. Thank you for joining me today. I'll be back with a new episode soon.